1: Welcome to the campfire.
2: Welcome, indeed. Who are you? Oh, you're Peggy.
1: And you're Tony. No kidding. Hey. We
2: must be those two RV industry veterans who travel part-time in a small trailer.
1: Looking to share big adventures and help you with great tips.
2: Tricks.
1: And discounts.
2: Indeed. Burn it where you bought it, buddy. Burn
1: it while you buy it. Or buy <laughs> it where you burn it. Depends right. on
2: Versi-visa.
1: <laughs> so... It's getting to be camping season for those of you who don't get to have camping all year. Ouch. Well, okay. So how about this? In California, we can camp all year, but we never like wood fires because we're yeah because there's been so many wildfires over the last few years. So for those of you who aren't us, <laughs> and well, you're actually,
2: getting, don't say never.
1: <laughs> and you're getting ready to go camping and have a wood fire. We wanted to remind you to buy it where you burn it or burn it where you buy it.
2: Well, and that doesn't just come from us.
1: No, absolutely not.
2: That came from the National Park Service.
1: Right. And the reason is that there are diseases and insects in firewood. And if you accidentally bring them from one location to another, and then that disease or that insect gets out before you manage to burn that piece of wood, then you're potentially spreading those diseases into new areas.
2: Yeah, that's what their word is. But I have some questions for you. Okay. How far am I allowed to bring wood if I bring wood?
1: A general rule is about 50 miles. Okay. Or another general rule is the less, the better. (laughs) Yeah, that's true.
2: Okay. But my wood's all clean and dry.
1: Well, you might think that, but have you inspected like... For little tiny insect eggs, Oh. did you use a microscope to look for fungi spores?
2: Well, I am a fun guy.
1: Well, there's that. (laughs)
2: Mm. So some
1: of that stuff isn't really visible. And really, if you bring some firewood that has something in it and you burn it immediately before anything gets a chance to release itself, it's probably okay. But really, it's just better not to take that kind of a chance.
2: So what about my friends?
1: Tell your friends. We're always reminding you to tell your friends. This is another thing to tell your friends. Remind them that they shouldn't bring wood if they're coming from a long distance. Just let them know that there will either be wood that's brought from somewhere locally or you can buy it somewhere locally.
2: Now, I wish there was some sort of a, I don't know, website where I could learn more.
1: As a matter of fact,
2: there's a bunch. But yeah.
1: here's a really good one. It's www.dontmovefirewood.org.
2: dot don't move firewood dot dot org. <laughs> yeah, don't dot org. It's a great it's website a great with website. good resources. And it's actually a serious problem. I know we have bark beetles here and yeah. in fact, uh, a couple of weeks ago we have redwood trees on our property and we had to cut one of them down and it was right. Probably a 200-year-old redwood tree or whatever. And it was just infested with some sort of bug. So that means, sadly, I bet eventually the rest of them have to go. That's a good possibility. And that would be a bummer and three quarters.
1: It will be. But it may happen. But we did not save the wood for firewood. As a matter of fact... No. uh, a chainsaw artist <laughs> took most of it, so...
2: Yeah, he's going to make it into something. Our tree will be made
1: into chainsaw art, so that'll yeah. be
2: fun. So I, I guess that's the good, but I'd rather the tree is out there providing shade and redwoodness. Yeah, I wish it
1: was. What are you going to do?
2: Well, I'm not going to move firewood.
1: That's what you're going to do, <laughs> exactly. And especially
2: not if I travel pretty much all over the world in a motorhome.
1: Who would do that?
2: We have some friends who do, and that's Rick and Kathy Howe the travel in tortugas. So That's right. Right after this, we are going to hear about their adventure.
1: People ask us how to get internet on the road. Campground Wi-Fi is more promised than deliver. And you want to be safe and secure and cell phone unlimited only goes for so long before you're throttled.
2: Yeah, it's not really unlimited, but the FMCA is here to the rescue again this time with their Tech Connect package for FMCA members. TechConnect delivers truly unlimited internet with their partnership with Sprint using a 3G, 4G unlimited plan.
1: And it's another great FMCA deal for just $49.99 a month that you use it, plus a one-time equipment rental fee of $39.99. Best of all, it's month to month, so use it when you're on the road, park it for just $13.99 a month when you're not.
2: Upload your RV experiences, enjoy unlimited video chat, browse safely, and just enjoy the internet on the road without worrying about lousy campground Wi-Fi that's more stressful than stress less.
1: This is another great reason to join FMCA, along with local chapters, get-togethers, a huge learning library, plus terrific deals on tires, in addition to other ways to save on tech and so... Much more.
2: And with our discount, you can join the FMCA and save $10 on your first year's membership. Just $79.99 when you go to our discounts and deals page on the Stressless Camping website.
1: Get connected safely with us and the FMCA with FMCA's exclusive Tech Connect program and all the other reasons to be an FMCA member.
2: Tech Connect is truly unlimited data, but data speeds might be slowed in very high traffic conditions. However, there is no data cap on your monthly. Usage. Wow. wow. We are with Rick Howe of the Traveling Tortugas. Rick and Kathy, since 2001, have traveled to a total of six continents, racking up 420,000 miles in a motorhome. They've shipped the motorhome all over, and that motorhome at present is a Proven Tiger, which is a really cool four wheel drive rig. Thank you so much for making time for us. What an adventure you lead. Yeah. Thank you very much. It's amazing. I mean, you've been literally all over the world. Right. We have
0: been. The truck has done a little better at that than us. It has shipped around the world. (laughs) Very literally. We've flown in and out. We started out with what we were most interested in and added to the list as we went along and heard about other places. (laughs) And we're very pleased with what we've done. You know, we've taken this truck in 65 countries which is not any kind of a record, but we were never out to set a record. But we've been on all six continents, and uh, we've enjoyed ourselves.
1: It may not be a record, but it's very impressive.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's sufficient for us.
2: Just the sense of adventure. I mean, you beat most people seven ways to Sunday with... Just the places you've been and taking a motorhome to Europe and South America and Africa.
1: Yeah, a lot of times when people talk about international travel, they say, well, just fly over and rent
0: something. (laughs) Yeah, you have shipped. Yes, we've shipped our truck to every place we've been.
2: So your home base is here in the U.S.
0: Yeah, we're from California, but we've been full time for 19 and a half years and just living on the road. When we left home, we started out with five and a half years or so just in North America. Canada, US, Mexico, doing the usual RV, moving north and south at the seasons and all of that. And we kept meeting people that were doing other things, and we got interested in doing that. And so we bought the Tiger in order to have a four-wheel drive vehicle that we could ship around the world. And we've done
1: it. What I read on your website is you actually started out with a motorcycle and a tent trailer.
0: Yeah, (laughs) this is true. (laughs) When we were working, we took our vacations on a motorcycle. And at the time we retired, uh, we had a Goldwing, a Honda Goldwing, and a small trailer. And we just left home on that. Unfortunately, we left on Halloween, so it was not the right time of year to really make that work very well.
1: Yeah, I don't think I'd make it very long.
0: (laughs) But We started out that way. That sense of adventure was certainly there. We had a lot to learn, but that part of the trip was good, too.
2: There's a lot of people who really like that because of the complete freedom. I mean, it's such a small rig, a motorcycle with a trailer. It just appeals to people. Right. I know somebody now who has a travel trailer and wish they were back in the motorcycle and tent trailer
0: days. <laughs> it's so much simpler. In all honesty, what we learned very quickly is the weather is just too much of a factor and limitations of facilities and you end up eating out more than you want to, things like that. Right. So it was fairly foolish to do, but at the same time, it was fun. And we were certainly ready for adventure and that was a good start.
2: So you traveled around the US for five years, as you said. At what point did you go, hmm, let's head south? Had you originally, when you started plan to tour more than the united states or as you traveled you gain more like hmm let's see other places
0: well it's both right from the start we knew that we would like to motorhome in europe we spent parts of about four winters in mexico and when you travel by rv in mexico you meet some fairly adventurous people because a lot of us rvers don't ever go to mexico even on one particular trip we met people heading to south america we met some people coming back who'd been there we met a French Canadian couple who were starting off on a world journey in a brand new little French motorhome. And this collection of meetings just inspired us to want to do more than what we'd been doing. That's when we started looking online and shopping and finding the tiger and then starting off on that kind of adventure.
2: That's how I found you is through the Tiger website.
0: Well, the Tiger is a great little motorhome. It was then and it is now, and, and they still make it. It's a small company in South Carolina. They started life in uh, Colorado, but gosh, the company's been building motorhomes for 35 years now. Wow. And from very early on, they were building something just basically like what they're still building now. It's not perfect. No motorhome, no RV, no trailer is perfect, <laughs> but it's a darn fine little coach. And as I say, ours is almost 14 years old, and we're full time in it. It's not really meant for full time air, intended for that, but it's held up really well.
2: That's impressive, right there. Right. And so then you head to South America, and you've been all the way to the southern point of South America.
0: That was the goal. And when we bought the Tiger, we wanted to do a full Pan American trip, the Pan American Highway. You know, we didn't spend that much time di- driving on the major highway, but it, it runs from Alaska all the way down. It's kind of a system of highways, really, all the way down to, into Argentina and, and to the bottom. And so it was that idea for that journey to do that. So we took the Tiger first through Canada and up to Alaska so that we could start up there and then head down. And that first part of the trip was also intended as a good shakedown cruise, it was a new motorhome, and we didn't know what we wanted to carry with us. But we did that, and uh, we were in Alaska in July or so, July, August of 07, and then we headed down from there, we reached the tip of South America in January of 09, so about a year and a half to do that journey down a great trip south america is one of our favorite destinations it's a fantastic place to travel and a great place to travel in a motorhome
2: any favorite countries down there
0: yes and oddly enough you know one of the things that keeps people from traveling as adventurously as they might is you watch the news and you hear this terrible story and this terrible killing or this terrible this that or the other thing our favorite country in south america was Colombia.
2: interesting well it's very green there
0: And the people are just magnificent. Colombia is this amazingly beautiful country with wonderful, friendly, charming people. Every time we talk about things like this or different countries and where we were, I always have to qualify it because things change in countries. And maybe it's still a great time. Anybody who's thinking about this kind of travel, you have to think about where you're going and look into it, research it a little bit, find other travelers that are there. All these things are things that we did. We got as far as Panama and w- without even really being sure where we were going to ship to from that point. <laughs> you can't drive South America. You get to Costa Rica or Panama, you reach the end of things and you have to put your vehicle on a ship. Some people were shipping from Costa Rica around on the Pacific side to get to Ecuador or Peru to avoid Colombia. Other people were going straight into Colombia And we were still researching and making our decisions when we got down there. But Colombia turned out to be an absolute highlight. I'd recommend it to anybody with the caveat, of course, for any country that you have to look into the political situation at the time you're going. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And anywhere you go, I mean, people have bad situations happen everywhere. Be aware, look around, know your surroundings, that kind of thing. But I would imagine you stick out even here in the U.S. because of all the stickers on the back of the motorhome.
0: (laughs) And we do. And it's not an effort to call attention to ourselves. But we have found over the years when we're overseas, it makes the truck look like a, a happy meal. I mean, it makes us look happy and welcoming and friendly. It encourages people to come talk to us, and they do. And it's just so much more interesting when the people will approach you As opposed to just being in an anonymous sprinter van or something that looks like a bunch of other ones, there's nothing wrong with that. But we have always found that by standing out just a little bit in that way, we have people come knock on the door and ask us questions and talk to us that we don't feel would otherwise. And we like that.
2: Yeah, it definitely shows, obviously, that you're travelers. But in any conversation, you always look for what's there to talk about. And you've created a great conversation starter just with all the stickers. (laughs) So it's brilliant.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you. Uh, So we spent a full year in in South America. We stuck to the Andean countries along the West Coast because that was our interest. The Andes are incredibly beautiful. The indigenous cultures are fascinating and colorful and and welcoming. It was just a great experience. When we talk about places we'd like to go back to, South America is always near the top of the list. We don't expect to be able to go back again to these places because it's it's hard, it's expensive, we're older, all those things. (laughs) But the memories are really great. And we worked our way all the way down to the tip of South America. You can only go there in a fairly narrow window of about two months in the summertime which down there is December and January and into February a little bit. And so you've got a time frame to work your way to get down there. But it was great fun. And you meet other overland travelers because South America narrows down physically. And then you've got this small window for people to be down there in their vehicles. So you tend to meet a lot of people. We have friends to this day in various parts of the world that we met down there in Patagonia.
2: Wow. Now, do you and Kathy speak any languages besides English (laughs)
0: That's another good question that always comes up. Not really, but yes and no. We were both from California, so we kind of automatically have just a little bit of Spanish. (laughs) And we both took French in school, so we have a little bit of French. Kathy took a semester of German at some point. But what we learned very quickly, and even in talking to people who really spoke Spanish, when you get into South America, just like in the U.S., you have regional accents and differences in speech that even we could hear, as non-Spanish speakers, the regions of South America were settled by Italians. Other regions were settled by people from Britain, from Germany. And you pick up the speech pattern. It's still Spanish, but it sounds like Italian in the, the lilt, and the rhythm of the language. And people who spoke much better Spanish than we did would say they couldn't really understand huh. very well. It just didn't work out well. The other thing we learned, especially in Spanish, I can say a lot more. I can work on this for the phrase ahead of time, how I want to ask the question. Mm-hmm. But you run the risk of sounding like you actually can speak the language because you've <laughs> practiced this. <laughs> then we park here tonight? And then you can't begin to understand the rapid fire la- uh, answer that comes back. <laughs> right. So it's almost better to just do what you can with what you've got. The other point on that is pretty quickly, we knew we were going to be doing this a lot around the world. You simply cannot let language be a barrier because if you're fluent in eight languages or some incredible number, that's still only eight countries or eight regions <laughs> you can go visit. Sure. I've never tried to count the different languages of the countries we've been to. Some of them, of course, multiple countries speak English or speak French or something like that. But you know, it's in the dozens and dozens and dozens of languages that we can't begin to learn. So you learn to get by with a smile and a hand gestures and simple questions, and you try to learn how to say thank you a lot and hello and it doesn't really matter there are good people and nice people friendly people all over the world and the stories we have of times when we couldn't speak a single word but we got help for what we needed or got an answer to our question i mean i could keep you going all day on just on that topic
2: yeah that's one of the things you know a smile and being polite is such a huge factor in travel and you're right i mean having traveled in europe myself when you know enough to ask for the bathroom or for another beer or no. whatever the heck it is. Oh, boy. Whatever's
0: important. <laughs> and they appreciate you making an effort. It's like life anywhere. If you stay home all your life, it's still the same thing. If you're nice to other people, they tend to be nice to you Yeah. and try to help you. Another question that comes up that relates to the language, you know, how do you take care of the truck? How do you get work done? Mm. And this truck, it's a Chevy Silverado with this camper built on the back of it. Fairly simple, fairly basic. We've had it worked on in 23 countries. Oh, wow. Not so many repairs. It's a great truck. It doesn't break very often. But just getting the oil change, getting tires, getting brakes, whatever. In many of those cases, there wasn't any language that's common. I would type up a list of what I needed and then run it through Google Translate. We used to carry a little printer with us. We don't have it anymore, but I'd hand it to them in Georgian or Russian or something. And that would work pretty well. In Armenia one time, an Armenian is really a different language. They, I mean, it's a whole different alphabet and no relation to anything that we'd be familiar with. Right. I had a, a leaking axle seal, Huh. and I was standing around with six or eight guys who'd gathered around to talk to us with no language whatsoever, and I'm pointing at this leak, and, oh yeah, and one of them jumps in the truck with us and takes us off to a mechanic who puts in a new seal that I was carrying because we'd had that problem before. Huh. So, I mean, the language is not the be all and end all of things. And a lot of people say, oh, you know, especially in Europe, they speak English everywhere. And it's just not true. If you're going to tourist destinations, yeah. then yes, certainly that can be true. But we travel off the beaten path or every chance we get. Small roads, small towns, out-of-the-way places. And no, they don't speak English everywhere. But you'd be amazed at the times that somebody will get out a cell phone Call somebody they know who does speak English and put them on the phone with you. Things like that. Ways of helping. You just learn and you cope and you do fine.
2: Speaking of the vehicle and maintenance, obviously taking a Chevrolet to Europe or Africa or South America, even just routine maintenance, you're going to encounter needing parts and such. How did you overcome that or did you find parts available?
0: Well, we always carried just the basics, oil filter, fuel filter, that kind of thing. Not very much. And again, it's been a great truck. I can't overemphasize that. It sounds like we had it worked on a lot of times, but no, this is over years and years and years, 250,000 miles on this truck. You mentioned a mileage earlier that is combined with other vehicles we had before this one. right? But how many times you change the oil? Well, about 25 times. So even just simple things like that. So we always carried our own filters in the first half of its life or more. I mean, up to 200,000 miles. I'm not sure there was a time when we really needed parts that i wasn't already carrying and as the truck gets older than a few times we've had to have parts shipped to us and that's expensive and time consuming and that's a nuisance but we were able to make it happen and i have a good friend in the states who's who takes care of the truck for us when we're on the west coast i'd call him from australia or africa or something and he'd work <laughs> out what to send me and I, you know we'd come so you'd make do now yeah. when we first started out i said well maybe we should get the mercedes sprinter we was just now out for a few years at that point when we were looking for this truck, and maybe we should do that, and that would be better. And it didn't work out for us because I'm kind of a big guy, and and the, the straight van-bodied kind of vehicle just wasn't big enough. But what we've learned since, because we know a lot of folks who have traveled in Mercedes, is they run into the same kind of problems we do, and they have to get things fixed. And if they end up at a Mercedes dealer for something, which would seem an advantage in a way, it is. On the other hand, it's terribly expensive yeah we would pay in some garden garage working on a truck that they never seen before (laughs) it's a balancing act there's no single right reason but i say at one point on our website in talking about this issue over the years i've learned to my satisfaction that you can travel around the world in an american pickup truck with no more trouble than anybody in a mercedes or a fiat or anything else yeah yeah maybe different problems at times but we didn't have any trouble. And Chevy dealers are not everywhere, but they're all through South America and occasionally in, in, in many countries in Europe, not everywhere. And they were unfailingly delighted to have us come in and unfailingly helpful. And we even got warranty work done in Argentina on a recall, but <laughs> wow. was barely new. So, you know, it's like everything else. I could come up with a list of 50 reasons if people ask me this without, about why why would you go or why aren't you afraid or language issue things like that if all you want to do is think of reasons not to go then sure add getting your truck worked on it to one of them but if you decide you want to go then you just take care of these problems and you learn as you go it's all part of the story it's all part of your experience and it can be a wonderful part of those memories
2: that's super cool so what is your traveling style do you tend to log a lot of miles or do more on foot or because you have some beautiful photographs
0: Oh, thank you very much. When we're traveling, it's, it's awkward right now because with the virus and everything and being back in the U.S., we're kind of just hunkered down and moving slowly and not doing a whole lot of interesting things. But when we're overseas, I want to say we move around a lot, but not so much. I mean, we don't make lists of things we want to do. We don't have a real need to go rushing about to do this or that. We're just wandering and, and seeing. We're just seeing what there is to see. And occasionally, due to like visa limitations, timeframes like that, We have to move faster than we want to, but when we can, we just putter around. When you start full-time travel, a lot of folks, ourselves included, now that you can go anywhere you want, you tend to do that, and you're just all over the place. But over time, you learn to relax a little bit more and not just put on miles for the fun of it. Overseas, we would rarely be stopped any place for more than three days, three nights, something like that. Not necessarily moving every day, but not hunkered down and staying any place either. And we would move about whatever country we're in, and you know you have a certain sense of things you want to see. But again, we say on the website, we don't make checklists, we refuse to. Somebody will say, well, how do you find out where you go? Do you watch TV and see Rick Steves or something? (laughs) Rick Steves is a great guy and I admire what he does. I mean, he's opened the doors to a lot of people for travel, but by the time it's on a program like Rick Steves, it's too crowded for us and we don't want any part of it. We want to go out of the way places, try to see things in as natural state as possible, Which means if they're kind of the hot point locations, we don't go. It's not our interest. Now, naturally, you go to Paris, you're going to go see the Eiffel Tower. And I wouldn't have missed that for the world. Right. A lot of things like that in Paris. But in a countryside situation, I don't need to see the highest mountain or the deepest river or the biggest gorge. I just want to meet the people mostly and learn what I can in our limited way about what's the life going on around us. Those are the high points.
2: So when you got to the tip of South America, where did you go from there?
0: That was early days in our international travel, and we would have done it differently now than we did then. Being out of the U.S. for so long, the first time, we missed things. I'll say I missed things. Kathy (laughs) was, in some ways, a better traveler than I am. (laughs) But I missed certain foods and comforts and conveniences, things like that. The other side of that is, The difficulties of travel are mostly on my back and not on hers. She's riding along while I'm driving, and she's enjoying the countryside and taking pictures from the car and reading the maps, and she's more free, and I'm watching the potholes and the roads and the (laughs) the speed bumps and looking out for the police. And it's more stressful for the driver. right? And for example, in South America, I'll cut to the bottom line and then come back a little bit. Bottom line is after a year in South America and a year being away from the U.S., I decided I'd had enough and we shipped the truck from Buenos Aires back to Jacksonville, Florida. But going back just a bit, traveling South America, every country has its unique style, its unique people, the clothing, the colors, things change. So the interesting parts are constantly varying. The hard parts are the same. Again, (laughs) lots of speed bumps, lots of bad roads. We didn't have a lot of trouble with police, but you're always concerned about it. And those kind of things that weighed on me they don't vary. So I had a year of those kinds of things. I wanted to rest or I felt I needed to rest. Yeah. Later in our travels, as we became more experienced, the smart thing to do would have been to leave the truck there, store it, and fly back home for a couple of months. And later in our travels, we did that constantly, all the time. That was the way we did it. When we went to South America, it was the kind of, oh, the sense of freedom was all great. We'll be there as long as we want to be, and then we'll come home, you know? And we hadn't even really thought about this other aspect of being there as long as you wanted to be, and then leave the truck there and go home so you can come back again. Yeah. So if we're doing it again, what I'd encourage other people to do would be that, is you find a place to store the vehicle, which we did regularly later on, but hadn't thought of it yet then, and go home, take a break for a while, and then come back, whether it's a seasonal kind of thing, you know, avoid the winter or whatever, or just to come home for a rest, whatever. And we've made that work much better for us later on. So South America suffered just a bit. Now, we were there a full year, and I don't have any regrets. But we should have been there a year or 10 months or something, parked the truck, gone away, and come back for another year. So we should have done
2: That's the other thing, is it's a constant learning experience. Absolutely.
0: And in yeah. addition
2: to the people and the countries, the food, I mean, there's things I love from certain countries in South America, like chimichurri sauce. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there are a lot of things to love and a lot of things maybe you don't like as much, but it's still it's different. And we were still learning and developing. And nowadays, we wouldn't handle it the same way, as I say. But what we did do is we shipped the truck back to the U.S., had it here for about eight months, something like that. Got a little work done on it. Went to see the friends and the family and the parents and those kinds of things. And then ship the truck to Europe from Jacksonville.
2: Cool. The roads down there, I think, are although they're rough, they're suited to the larger vehicles like yours, for example. But then you went, you took it to Europe, and what's what's that like? Because that's a relatively large vehicle for European roads, or for some European roads.
0: Well, yeah, that's a good, a a very good observation. And I don't want to badmouth the roads in South America too much. Just before we leave, in every (laughs) country you had. Some excellent roads and some bad roads. Well, that sounds a lot like the U.S. Yeah,
2: Yeah, I've had roads in the U.S.
0: Maybe they're not quite as good as they are overall in the U.S., but plenty of good roads, plenty of not so good roads in both places. Europe, as you point out, is a different experience vehicle-wise because the roads are narrower. Not the major highways, near the big cities, but in general, going through the countryside, the roads are narrower They tend to be very good in most parts of of Europe, but smaller. The scale is smaller. The parking lots are smaller. Each individual parking space is smaller. I tell people in terms of vehicles, if you're thinking of Europe in terms of parking and driving and what car you, what vehicle you should take with you, at best, it's about seven-eighths scale for the U.S. In a lot of ways, it's more like three-quarters scale because the cars are smaller. Everything's smaller. So you have to be careful with your vehicle. But at the same time, European motorhomes are growing, just as they do in the U.S., and our Tiger is on a short wheelbase truck. It's not an extended cab or a club cab or something like that. And overall length is, uh, well, it's about 21 feet. We've got some storage boxes on the back and everything else. So it's not a very long vehicle. It's just a few inches over seven feet wide. So it's wider than a van, but it's narrower than a standard American RV by at least a foot. Mm -hmm. And so it really was not a bad fit in Europe. And we're not terribly tall either, about 10 feet tall. And the Tiger is kind of midsize in Europe in terms of RVs. And then, of course, all these European roads have got big trucks on them. Same as we have in the U.S. Yeah, the driving is not a problem. Parking is more of an issue. <laughs> when you go to the grocery store. You know, you've been there. You know what I mean. When you need to park the vehicle, then usually you're going to take up two spaces, and that's not always appreciated by people around you and things like that. Yeah. But we found it very manageable. There are people particularly uh, Brits, uh, English people in Europe, but there are people who import U.S. motorhomes because they want that big, luxurious vehicle. And you don't see a lot of them on the road, but you see some. I think they're crazy, but but it's (laughs) it's all good. You could take a big American motorhome to, to Europe and travel in it. You just would be limited in a lot of the places you might be able to go. And you'd be forced into only certain places you could camp, things like that. But that's true almost anywhere. The smaller the vehicle you're comfortable traveling in, the better off you are. Because the more free you are to go anywhere you want and stop anywhere you want. Back to the motorcycle. Yeah, that too.
2: (laughs) Do you tend to stay in campgrounds or what type of locations are you looking for to spend the night?
0: We boondock almost all the time. It's a question of affordability, but also, again, freedom. Every part of the world we've been to, we've been able to boondock. In Europe, they really have some wonderful systems in place. In Western Europe, they have something called AIRES, A-I-R-E-S. It's simply a French word for area, area of service. But it's AIRES. In Germany, they call them Stelplats, different, different names around the, around the continent. But these are basically municipal campgrounds. They typically are quite small, I mean, five, six spaces at most, and often don't have any services, often will have a dump station and water available, sometimes for an extra fee, sometimes not. But these are places where the communities have established these in order to have some people come and stop, and often the heirs will be right in the middle of town. And then you stop and stay the night, and they know you're going to wander around and shop and buy groceries and go to the restaurants. And so it's an excellent system. And we have the same kind of thing in parts of the U.S. with city parks. But in Europe, it's really well developed. And so you can camp very inexpensively that way. Actual full-on campgrounds in Europe tend to be fairly expensive. We didn't do that basically at all because we just decided not to to begin with. And they also tend to be very seasonal in nature. So they're packed, crowded in in the summertime and closed in the wintertime. So we didn't find them very interesting. As you move into Eastern Europe, you lose the airs because that kind of developed camping system doesn't exist there. It becomes wide open. You can literally pull over by the side of the road almost anywhere you want to be that you feel comfortable in park or, you know, on a city street. You don't have any trouble. And we did that a lot. We have a page in our website. I always forget exactly what it is. Motorhoming in Europe. Something like that, and it gives our expense records for all six seasons that we were in Europe. When I say season, we would spend about eight months a year, fly home to the states. We had a second motorhome at the time, and we would travel in the U.S. in the winter time. So, six seasons worth of financial records there. People are amazed how little we spent, and especially on camping. If you choose to, you can really hardly spend a dime on camping, especially
2: with a fully contained motorhome.
0: That's a good point because that's the requirement. You can't stay in these airs in a car. You have to have your own facilities, and that's very true in New Zealand as well. They police that because the last thing they want is people making messes uh, around their their areas. So it has to be a self-contained, and and in Europe, interestingly, self-contained motorhome and not trailers.
1: Hmm. Oh!
0: If you're going to Europe, you definitely want a motorhome, not a trailer. Interesting. Okay.
1: Good to know before we call that shipping company. (laughs)
0: I'll just give you briefly the reason because it's not a discussion you want to get too far into. The gypsies, the Roma... In Europe, typically travel with a van that they can do work in or go to work in and a trailer. And unfortunately, they, how do I say this? I'm not opposed to that lifestyle at all. We do the same thing here in a way. But they will travel in groups and they'll come in and just commandeer a piece of land and take it over. And then landowners have a hard time getting them to leave. Mm. Yeah. And that's the issue. We have some British friends, traveling friends, who've been full-timing on the road for over 20 years, longer than we have. And they've always done it in motorhomes. And then, you oh, know, five years ago or so, they decided to experiment with having a trailer. They immediately ran into trouble in England and Europe. Interesting. They had a van and a trailer. Huh. They're both retired university professors, tremendous experience in traveling, and they immediately had trouble with a trailer that they never had when they were in a motorhome. Wow. So it's a serious issue.
1: Yeah. Huh.
2: See, we learned
1: Good thing something. thing to know, yeah. Well, we've learned a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so I read on your website that there was one U.S. state that you haven't been to. Do you want to talk about that, or should we just make people go read about it?
0: <laughs> Happy to. You. We'll break the news. As soon as this virus breaks up and we can be more free to travel, we plan to correct that. Okay. We've never been to Rhode Island. Uh If you look at a map, obviously Rhode Island is very small, but it's also around the corner. It's out of the way. If you're heading to Nova Scotia, which we highly recommend, we love Nova Scotia, or you're heading just north to Maine or whatever you want, you got to turn out of your way and go straight across Connecticut to get to Rhode Island. We never made it. We were close one time and we've made this mistake over the years. You're near something and you say, well, you know, we kind of want to go to do this instead. We'll we'll come back to that next time, and then sometimes <laughs> next time never comes, and it gives you reason to feel guilty about things. But Rhode Island will be visited by Traveling Tortuga as soon as it's reasonable to do. <laughs> Maybe not this year because we're we're going to be heading west, but next year for sure. Sounds good.
2: <laughs> From Europe, did you then ship the truck? to africa or did you just drive you can of course
0: you, you can ship anywhere around the world if you haven't come to it yet i have a series of pages on shipping a vehicle we've done it more than most people do and we have recorded that information and costs and emails and who to call and things like that for each of our shipping experiences and then we've Collated information from a lot of other travelers of their experiences as well. I've taught classes in shipping the vehicle at something called Overland Expo. I don't know if you know what that is. But oh, yeah.
2: But for our audience who may not.
0: Well, Overland Expo, is a what we do is called overlanding. I mean, it simply is overland travel. It's nothing exotic or special. But it typically includes a certain amount of adventure travel, four-wheel drive type vehicles, things like that. Anybody who's traveling in an RV, in effect, is doing overland travel. It's more of a question of how far you branch out and get out of the normal mainstream to be considered a real overlander. Overland Expo is held once a year in, now they're up to three locations. They started out with Overland West, which takes place in Arizona, usually in May. And then, oh, 10 years ago or so, they started in Overland East in North Carolina in the Asheville area. And then just very, very recently, in the last year or two, they've come up with a mountain overland, which is kind of in between those two. So they're up to three now. And if you go to overlandexpo.com, it gives you the dates and everything else. It's a great gathering. And we'll go again as soon as we can. Two years in a row, i have to qualify that too. We've only been to two Overland Expos. Not because we're not interested, because we're never in the country. (laughs) (laughs) If we're in the country at all, it's in the wintertime, as I said earlier. And during the summertime, we're gone. And sometimes we're only in the States six weeks at a time and maybe once a year. So we haven't had the opportunities to just be regulars at these things. But in both 2015 and 2016, we were in the U.S. at the right time to do Overland Expo West. And in each of those cases, I taught a class on shipping. So there's a lot of information on the website. Anybody who would be listening to this and wanted to look into shipping, that's the best resource I know anything about, information gathered together on shipping your vehicle. Great. We could have shipped directly from Europe to Africa, getting back to your original question. But after five and a half years in Europe, traveling in the Tiger, which followed two years in South America, Latin America, we had some things we needed done, needed some work done. Plus our next shipping was going to be to a more difficult and more adventurous place vehicle-wise. So we wanted to get some preparatory servicing done to the vehicle. So we brought the truck back to the States and we ended up having a fair amount of work, more than I thought we would, done at the Tiger factory, just addressing a few seemingly kind of minor issues. But the best way to fix them turned out to be a fairly major upgrade of Uh. the truck. And then we separately later in the year on the West Coast had a lot of mechanical work done on the truck that it didn't need yet, but it was 180,000 miles then and X, Y, and Z are all working fine, but think I had 100,000 miles. What am I likely to have trouble with? Right. Yeah. And we did a lot of renewing and refurbishing of the truck. And both of those stories are on the website as well. I mentioned early on when we were talking about South America, the best way to get information if you're interested in this kind of travel is to find people that are doing it or have done it. And find their website. And we took advantage of that early on from other people and some other people who are still friends of ours. 20 years later, well, 15 years later, that we've met that way. Kathy and I have always been committed to paying that forward, if you will, and sharing that information. So you'll find our website, I would say, is extremely informative on vehicle issues, equipment issues, solar systems, all kinds of things. And then things like shipping, storing the vehicle is a separate page on that because in europe the five different winters would we left the tiger and came home we stored it in five different places around oh. the continent and that information is there we've reached out to other travelers on where did you store and i've added that information as well so there's a whole preparatory guide there for anybody who wants to take a motorhome to europe so new zealand
2: is unusual in that rather than ship your rv there you actually rented one in new zealand
0: Yeah. A lot of reasons for that. So we had the Tiger back in the U.S. all of 2016. Got work done on it. I had an operation on my shoulder, took care of a lot of business and caught up on some things in preparation for shipping to Australia and then on to Africa. So in spring of 2017, we shipped from California to Melbourne in Australia. And that's a long shipping. You can ship your truck to Europe. You're only without the vehicle about three weeks. But to Australia was going to be supposed to be six, seven weeks. And then as it turns out, it was delayed. The ships were full. Shipping is nothing like booking an airline ticket. And you know, the plane's going to leave on time. <laughs> you make your arrangements the best way you can. And then everything is flexible after that. So we ended up being without the truck for 12 weeks. Wow. And when the truck being our home, and by that time we'd sold our other motorhome that we had been keeping in the US, then you know we had time to fill. So we came up with, I thought, the very brilliant idea of spending that time in New Zealand in a rental van.
2: That is brilliant.
0: <laughs> Looking back on it, maybe we would have done differently. We want to do X, Y, and Z. We want to do a lot more things. And so there's a little bit of sense of pushing ahead. And so there was a time efficiency involved when we knew that our tiger was going to take close to three months to get to Australia. And it's our home. What are we going to do in the States for three months? You know, be right. in motels or something. Can't hang out with your friends for three months. We can.
1: <laughs> That's a lot of couch surfing.
0: Yeah. so it made. Really good sense to use that time in New Zealand, and we had a wonderful time in New Zealand. The rental van experience is what it is, it's not cheap. We were lucky to be going at a shoulder season time, which lowers the rates considerably and also lowers the crowd level, or it's many people. Uh-huh. New Zealand can be very crowded with tourists in their summer, in their peak season,
2: which is our winter,
0: which is our winter, of course, through the holidays, uh, December, January, that kind of time frame. The schools down there take long breaks because that's their summer. That's their, their summer vacation, basically. And a lot of people fly in to, to travel. So I wouldn't go to, the, to New Zealand in, in that time frame. We were there in April, May, early June, and that was pretty perfect. New Zealand is two islands North Island, South Island. The South Island is the more famous, that's where the big mountains and the glaciers, snow and everything is. And it's a little quieter, a little bit smaller population. North Island has more uh, Maori. Cultural, that's their indigenous people, Maori cultural kinds of things going on. The larger cities are in uh, North Island. We enjoyed both of them equally. The attractions to both. Again, it's a matter of time. We had 10 weeks in New Zealand, which is easily three times as long as most people ever, ever do. I mean, a three-week tour in New Zealand is pretty standard. So we had more time than most and saw maybe more than most. Camping in New Zealand is excellent. Lots of opportunities to wild camp. There were times when we spent a little bit of money for a government campsite but we never spent very much money in camping in New Zealand.
2: From my understanding, the way it works there is there are all sorts of just places you can stop and boondock and it's completely normal and widely accepted and set up for that. So you just see a place on the side of the road and pull over and you're all good.
0: And that's pretty much true. They're more and more concerned and rightly so in the sense that you really need to be legal. You need to be doing that in a self-contained vehicle. huh. If they find you camped overnight, don't have your own toilet and tanks and things, they will fine you. And the fines are pretty steep. Hmm. The enforcement level isn't so great that a lot of people don't go and do it and get away with it. Huh. But we have talked to people who have been given $200 fines for an overnight stay in the wrong vehicle. Wow. When you look into rentals in New Zealand, it's very easy to rent a hippie van kind of a thing, you know, just a van with nothing right. in it and travel around that way. Again, to be legal, you have to be staying in hostels, hotels, things like that. Right. It's a perfectly good way to see New Zealand. Just rent a car and stay in the hostel environment. People do that a lot. We know many people who have, have spent far more time than we have in New Zealand going back on repeated trips and traveling that way. So it's all open and, and ready to do. The wild camping, boondocking aspect of it, we would strongly urge anyone to have. Make sure you're renting a van that's certified for that. Right. And they have stickers on the back. And, but there's plenty of that in New Zealand. Plenty of beautiful places you can go. And just great things to see.
2: And they have a heck of a wine region, too.
0: (laughs) They do. We're not wineies, if that's a word. But they do have a respected wine region, as, of course, does Australia.
2: Yeah. Well, I know some of our friends where we live own wineries. And they say that the New Zealand wines have really gotten a lot of acceptance and awards. And where we live tends to match their wines in terms of growing conditions and all Mm -hmm. of that.
0: So uh, strongly urge anyone to get to New Zealand. It's a beautiful country, not a very large population. Roads are good. Everything's well-maintained, very attractive. Just avoid those heavy tourist months. And if you're camping, make sure you have a self-contained unit. But it's very doable.
2: And if you hate winter, then you could be over there for Christmas and come back here and completely miss it, which used to be my
0: life goal. Tony's life goal, yeah. Always be be
1: where it's summer. Yeah, chase (laughs) summer
0: around the planet. Well, Australia is the better choice for that. I guarantee it. Okay. If you want summer, go to Australia.
2: <laughs> or at least not winter, not yeah. anyth- anything below 70 degrees. I, I, <laughs> I never wanted to see that ever again.
0: Well, you're not going to be much of a traveler. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, uh, reality is set in. So. Yeah. I've actually
1: seen a map of the United States. It's a route that you can take so that every day you'll be, uh, not guaranteed obviously, but you will probably have a 70 degree day Every single day on this trip across the U.S.
2: I'm good. Let's
1: go. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, and that's one of the great things about RVing in North America. You try to do it as much north south as possible. Yeah. And uh, summertime you go north because it gets too hot in much of the U.S. And in the wintertime you go south. Yep. Because of the reverse. And we've had some wonderful years. We've had a, a year where we're, we're seeing the same pretty little pink flowers in nova scotia in august that we were seeing in georgia in february wow <laughs> so we were fortunate with our timing that we were in new zealand in their fall shoulder season and we spent 10 weeks there in a rental van it was just spectacular it was beautiful fall color in the trees and snow on some of the mountains and green everywhere new zealand's a beautiful beautiful place we had a great time there and then we flew on to melbourne australia to meet the truck there and to pick it up there. And then we spent a full year in Australia. The standard Australian visa is three months, but it's very, very easy to apply for up to one year. We didn't have any trouble getting that at all. You have to show a certain amount of financial stability, things like that, but it was no problem. We could have extended that for one more year and i wish we had (laughs) kathy's kind of the mover and shaker in this family
2: that's how it works
0: and she wasn't tired of australia by any means neither one of us were it's a wonderful place to go but she's a little bit more a eager to get to the next thing and b a little more likely to worry about one of us getting sick or breaking something or you know cutting our travel short and we've been very lucky on that front as well and that hasn't happened but when you're about to travel off to africa there's a sense of maybe we Better go. But anyway, we were in Australia for a year, and it was just incredible. The thing about Australia, and I love to to give this kind of explanation. It's a country of twenty three and a half million people, and it's a country that's almost as big as the lower forty eight states. Not quite, but you know, within ten percent probably. So it's a big country, and ninety eight percent of those twenty three million people live around the edges. So you want open space, you want boondocking, you want night skies, and the central part of Australia, the, the outback, is incredible. It's just wonderful that way. And the bird life and the animal life and just the freedom of literally stopping any place you want. In Australia, it's just amazing.
2: Yeah, they're well-suited to, I guess, just night camping. From my understanding, it's something that's very, very common there.
0: Yeah, RVing is very popular in Australia and specifically heavy-duty vehicle travel because the roads in the outback <laughs> are pretty amazing. <laughs> the roughest roads we've seen
2: it. They have those road trains.
0: They have road trains, which are amazing to see. But again, this country is almost as big as the lower 48. And there are two paved east-west highways. <laughs> 1,800 miles apart. The top to bottom in Australia is about the same distance as from Houston to Minneapolis. I mean, it's more. It's even bigger than that. But it's very similar to that. So if you were to picture a continent with I-10 at the bottom an I-90 going through Minneapolis and no paved roads going east and (laughs) west between them. If you can get your mind around that. Wow. In Australia. So all the roads are are dirt and there are only a few of them. And the road trains, they're awesome. These are big semi-trucks. I have to assume they have bigger engines than ours do, but they look very similar to our big semi-truck, but with up to four trailers behind and up to 96 wheels. You know, 18-wheeler? Yeah,
2: it's there's huge. 96
0: wheels on these things, and I've counted them, and I can prove it. <laughs> I've got pictures. <laughs> and they barrel down these dirt highways in the middle of the country, and they chew them up, no doubt about it. <laughs> Man. So if you're lucky enough to go on a road that's been graded that year, then it's not too bad. But if you're starting off on a journey to go 1,000 miles across this area before you get to any big community or anything anywhere, and it hasn't been graded that year, then those roads are almost intolerable. That's not to say a negative. It's a, it's a mixed blessing. The openness, the spaciousness is worth the rough roads as far as we're concerned. Man. And camping in Australia is fantastic. Now, we avoided, as we tend to do, as we said earlier, we avoided the whole East Coast, which is where the bulk of that population is. Yeah. We spent some time in Melbourne, which is down in the Southeast corner, but we never went to Sydney, didn't go to Brisbane, didn't go up and down that whole garden coast, they call it, because it's crowded, it's expensive, you lose the ability to free camp, and the campgrounds are very pricey. It just wasn't worth it. You know, again, we don't have lists. We don't say, <laughs> well, you can't spend a year in Australia and not go to the Opera House in Sydney. We'd love to see the Opera House in Sydney, but it's not worth the difficulties of doing it. Not for us.
2: man i like their style
1: yeah for sure what adventures yeah I mean, wow
2: well but you know we left rick and kathy in australia what about africa
1: as a matter of fact they have been to africa for 18 months and we didn't get a chance to talk to them about that so they're coming back next
2: week and what about other places and how do they know where to go and, and what to well, see look,
1: oh, calm down <sighs> just come back next week okay and we'll hear all about it. And in the meantime, we're gonna come right back after this. Everybody seems to be talking about lithium batteries for their RVs.
2: Of course, they charge faster, last longer, weigh less, and require zero maintenance. Plus, you don't have to replace them every few years.
1: We love Lion Energy's safe lithium batteries and with their limited lifetime warranty, they're the last batteries you'll have to buy for your RV.
2: Of course, we have a discount for you on our Discounts and Deals page. And you can learn more about why lithium is the way to go. I am all charged up about Lion Energy.
1: (laughs) I, on the other hand, should have taken that moment to go get a glass of water.
2: I know how you can get some really good water. Do you? Yes. So we did a video. We're not big on doing videos right now, but we did did one. (laughs) It was about something that was sent to us, the Clear to o water filter. And I do get a fair number of gadgets sent to me because I write some of the gadget stories on RV travel and we write gadget stories on stressless camping and uh-huh. blah, blah, blah. And now we have the gadget videos. Right. And sometimes it's like, yeah, big whoop.
1: <laughs> nice. Well, it's true. I mean, some of these things, it's like,
2: dude, you, you either... Spent a lot of time around the campfire with the beers open or, or what. But, but sometimes...
1: <laughs> but sometimes... These
2: products are outstanding. And yeah. this Clear Two O filter is one of those times. I agree. So what this is, it's a two-stage filter, right? One of those... If you have ever used those blue inline water filters that so many RVers use, right? right? Well, the Clear Two O filter is two pieces. One piece looks exactly like those blue filters, except that it's green. The other is like a mushroom that goes on top of it. And the mushroom is a sediment filter. Mm -hmm. And the green inline filter is a solid charcoal filter as opposed to the granulated charcoal filter. Right. So we blindfolded Peggy because she has a great (laughs) sense of taste, except in (laughs) co-hosts. And Peggy got to try all different kinds of water. And the bottom line is the Clear 2O filter just outperformed our three-stage filter. It did. And I, in retrospect, think it does at least as well, if not better than our pure filter.
1: It definitely has more capability because it has that sediment filter in addition to the pure filter. What I believe is that because it's a solid carbon filter instead of granulated. If you watch the video and you'll see that I know that I can taste what I identify as that carbon and I didn't taste that in the Clear 20 and I think it's because of the solid carbon filter rather than the granulated <laughs> filter.
2: Whatever it is, it just dug on works. It's much smaller and easier to carry than For our sure. three-stage yes. filter. So the three-stage filter, heck, we could give it away. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> Here's a used filter that's starting to rust. <laughs>
1: it's really big and heavy. Yeah, and clumsy. <laughs> Actually, it's been a great filter. It has. I mean, well, I don't oh, want to yeah. diss that one either. If we didn't know about Clear 2O, I'd be perfectly happy with our well, three we face were. filter. But this is so much lighter and easier to carry around. It's a and really, nice really nice configuration.
2: Really yeah. yeah, and works. That's the bottom line. The thing I've heard people say is, well, I don't drink the water in the RV anyway. Your skin is the largest organ on the body and when you take a shower you're absorbing stuff. Yeah. So, just something to think or about.
1: Right. So last week We Uh asked you if you had seen the movie Nomadland.
2: And people said no, (laughs) ma'am. I was surprised.
1: Actually, a lot of people. We had 20 votes that said they have not seen it and and four four that had.
2: And we hadn't last week either.
1: We had not. And
2: Okay, so here's the sequence of events. <laughs> so we wanted to watch it on Hulu, which is where you can get it right now. So we fire up the old Apple TV and push the Hulu button. And oh, our subscription expired. So we had to resubscribe, push the Hulu button again. And it says, well, Hulu's no longer compatible with your old Apple TV.
1: Wow, Hulu sounds like it's got an oh, attitude. Yeah.
2: Oh, Hulu, Hulu <laughs> man, it, it does. Hulu does.
1: Anyway, so... We have a new Apple
2: TV now. Now we have a new Apple TV. (laughs) And we watched Nomadland. And we did watch
1: Nomadland. So of our votes and of the comments on our Facebook group, Chris and Catherine both said that they had read the book and it was quite a bit different from the movie with a kind of a broader view and not so much focused on one person. I am going to read the book, but I didn't want it to cloud the judgment of the movie. So I waited and I will read the book now that I've seen the movie.
2: And one of the things Catherine said, a majority of our our listeners at the Stressless Camping Podcast are likely to be leisure or adventure campers rather than full timers. Although I I don't know. I don't know. What are you out there? (laughs) All of (laughs) y'all?
1: Maybe that's our next week's question. (laughs) No, we have. I know we do. Maybe that's next next week's question. Anyway, so we watched the Movie, and I read a lot of people saying that they think it's sad and depressing, and I didn't see that at all. I think that Fern, the main character in the movie, loved that she had the freedom to do what she wanted to do. I'm not going to say too much, I don't want to spoil anything. No,
2: don't be a spoiler.
1: But I didn't see it as a sad, depressing movie.
2: Here's a theory of mine if you are not familiar with the nomad lifestyle, and all of that, you might look at that and go, oh my gosh, that's awful. How terrible for that. It all depends on your perspective. That's very true. Like so many things in life. Right. We saw people we knew. (laughs) We did.
1: (laughs) We saw people and places that we knew.
2: It's so funny. They're driving around. We're like, hey, we've been there. Hey, we've been there. Oh yeah, we know where that is.
1: So I would still recommend seeing the movie. And I would still like, you know, other people's feedback, but you know, I have my opinion, and you have yours, and that's all good. But overall, I'd say it's a it's a good movie. I might even watch it again.
2: Well, you can because now we have. Ooh. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> And an Apple TV that'll show it. Right. Where would somebody find those questions of the week?
1: Well, you'd find the questions of the week on our Stressless Camping Podcast group on Facebook. Yeah. Ooh, <laughs> that's a lot of words. That's a lot of words. So on Facebook, Stressless Camping Podcast is where you would find these questions of the week. We love to get the feedback from there. And this week we will post the question. Are you tired of Facebook? Well, if you are, you're not going to go see yeah, right? that podcast or-
2: <laughs> well you might go there and go see ya sucker <laughs> Would you be more interested in a private friendly forum that is not Facebook? I'm curious. You know, forums go back uh, alright. Oh boy, here I can hold. Get
1: ready to nerd out everybody. Oh yeah,
2: sorry, here we go. I used to run a nine line dial up chat board. Called Chatline, the cruise ship of your mind, and oh it was a dial-up chat board. And I dig forums and chat boards, and that's why I like Facebook. But
1: some of you might not be old enough to know what dial-up yeah, is. Yeah, right. <laughs> before Consider there was Consider yourself Wi-Fi. lucky.
2: Yeah, right. Before there was the internet, really in widespread use. Yeah. I mean, I remember when the internet came, and it was like, oh my gosh, I could talk to people anywhere now. <laughs> Nerds, of course. That was before normal people found it.
1: Anyway. So that's our question. We just want to know how you're feeling about Facebook and how you would feel about a private forum.
2: And it would be free if it existed.
1: Theoretically.
2: Right. <laughs> Speaking of that Facebook podcast group, we have gotten a tremendous number of new folks this we week. Have. So, welcome to all of welcome you. Welcome to
1: everybody. And if you told your friends like we ask you to do, thank you for doing that.
2: Yeah, indeed. And we're going to keep it friendly and polite and no snarky answers and that kind of nonsense. Mm-hmm. Did you know we do a once a week newsletter? I knew. And it's
1: free. I knew that too. Boy, but what smart. I don't know is what's in this week's newsletter. Well, this
2: week we are talking about our. RV events, woohoo!
1: They're back. Oh,
2: it's so great.
1: RV events are starting to come back, and so our online calendar is starting to get busy again.
2: Yeah, you can find RV events at the Stressless Camping website. There are even some online virtual RV events, and we are going to be part of at least one of those. We are indeed. So, if you'd like to learn more, just visit our website, and you can sign up online for the newsletter, which again is free.
1: And know that we are not going to use your email address for anything else other than sending you this week weekly newsletter. We're not going to share it with anyone. We're just going to send you a newsletter. Other than that, we're going to keep it to ourselves. And
2: the only spam that we like is the breakfast kind. Right. (laughs) But you can tell your friends about the Stressless Camping podcast or website or Facebook group or newsletter.
1: You can. And we appreciate when you do.
2: Yeah. And of course, we're in all those usual social places. But you can start at StresslessCamping.com where you can jump off and join us in all the social world.
1: And don't forget, while you're on www.stresslesscamping.com check out our deals and discounts page because we have got some awesome deals on things you need for your stressless camping adventure and by the way if you have a great deal for our audience please let us know we'd love to hear about it
2: of course if you don't want to miss a future episode of the stressless camping podcast it's free And you can subscribe on any podcast app.
1: We're saving a seat for you around our virtual campfire.
2: And you know that a review will help others find this podcast. And the more listeners we have, the better the guests we get. So if you haven't left a review on Apple Podcasts yet, oh, please do. And so thank you, thank
1: Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank
2: you. That's what we have. It was an extra long episode this week. We appreciate your being with us. Come back next week because our guests are coming back too. That's right. Until then...